That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy. Like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. This portion of the Hartman Report podcast is brought to you by Phone.com. Phone.com delivers the most comprehensive suite of phone features for business at the lowest price. Go to Phone.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to save 20%. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And top of the morning or afternoon or whatever it may be to you, I want to begin with disaster porn. You can't turn on the TV right now without seeing hurricane porn, right? <laughs> it's just all the time. And it's like, you know, yeah, there's, there's winds out there. You know, there's winds all over the place. But, uh, and, and, you know, this storm was a terrible storm. And what it did to the Bahamas is truly horrific. And, you know, now it's going up the East Coast, and yeah, that's going to be a problem. I don't think that the going up the East Coast part of it as a Cat 2 necessarily deserves all the coverage it's getting. But the, the thing that is really missing is any discussion whatsoever about climate change. This storm took out the Bahamas, and frankly, so far the death toll is seven, but obviously, I mean, you just look at the pictures Yes, there was an evacuation. I don't know how thorough or comprehensive that evacuation is, but you know, I would say fairly obviously that death toll is going to go up. You'll recall, you know, when Trump went to uh, Puerto Rico, which was the last time we had a Category Five hurricane, and which he was, he was like, I don't, I don't think I've ever even heard of a Category Five earthquake. That's because you weren't paying attention to, to what happened to Puerto Rico. But the bottom line is that what nobody's discussing is that this storm would not have been as serious as it was if the waters of the Caribbean were not a couple of degrees warmer than they typically are. And this is the clear consequence of climate change. About 90% of the heat that the atmosphere has been holding is ending up in our oceans, and it's bleaching the coral reefs all around the world. The Great Barrier Reef in Australia is nearly dead. This is dramatic climate change that we're watching right in front of us. And yet there's no mention of it. Now, if you turn on European television, and even, I mean, just watch the BBC or France 24, right? They're, you know, most cable systems have them, or a lot of them do. You can get them online. And they do weather reports, or they'll report on our hurricane. And they just mention in passing, you know, this is being made worse by climate change. The U.S. media does not ever talk about this, or when they do, it's very, very rare. Eric Bollert had a piece over on Daily Co's 
talking about how there's this website that monitors the three cable TV networks, Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. And, you know, uh, over a thousand mentions, I forget the number, but it's well over a thousand mentions of, of hurricane and fewer than 100 mentions of global climate change. And those were probably all limited to MSNBC and they probably weren't the news shows. So why is that? Why is it that the corporate media in the United States never mentions climate change, particularly in the context of these kinds of disasters, and yet the media of other countries does? Why is it that the media in the United States does not, when there's a mass shooting, does not talk about the clear association, the absolute, this is not even in dispute. The more guns you have, the more killings you're going to have. Period. It's real simple. Why is it that they never mention that? And, you know, we come up with these elaborate conspiracy theories for why this is the case. And, oh, it's the corporate media. Oh, they share boards of directors with fossil fuel companies and gun manufacturers. Quack, 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 quack. You know, it just hit me this morning. When I was uh, putting together, our, we, do, we do a little paragraph every day that we put up on Facebook. And I was, I was putting this thing together, suddenly hit me. Why the media doesn't talk about climate change in the context of extreme weather and why they don't talk about the number of guns in the United States in the context of mass shootings and, and other problems. An article in Newsweek just this, you know, just yesterday or the day before, about a woman whose 18-year-old daughter came home from college unannounced and mom shot her. I mean, you know, this is just like, why don't we discuss this? Well, I think it's because they've been politicized. Now, I realize that that sounds kind of, well, what does that mean? But let me explain this. The Republican Party is now wholly owned or has created an absolute, unshakable, top-to-bottom, left-to-right alliance with the fossil fuel industry and the National Rifle Association and the weapons manufacturers that it represents. That is the GOP right now. So the reality of climate change in every other country in the world, now keep in mind, here's the, the big piece to this whole thing. We are literally the only country on earth that has a political party that says climate change doesn't exist. Or if it does, it's natural and it's irrelevant. We're the only country in the world, the only developed country in the world that has a single political party that thinks that having as many guns in circulation as possible is a good thing. I pointed out yesterday, Greg Abbott signed into law seven different pieces of legislation the day before, well, they went into effect the day after this most recent shooting in Texas. And so these are, so when the media thinks about talking about or reporting on issues that have to do with climate change or that have to do with guns, they don't think of them as, hey, this is, we need to report on science, the science of climate change or the science that shows that more guns, more gun deaths. They don't think that. They think instead, uh, well, the Republicans are all in favor of this. And so if we report the science on this, it seems like we're taking the side of the Democrats. And we don't want to be the ones who are taking the sides of the Democrats because ever since Lee Atwater, they've been working the refs. 
right? They, you know, for, for, for 30 years now, the Republicans, have, 40 years, the Republicans have been yelling and screaming about liberal media's bi media bias to the point that the media in this country is just absolutely gun-shy. They're, they're terrified of these Republicans. And by the way, it's true. You know, I can tell you, I mean, you know, clearly it happens, you know, with this program, I talk about climate change and I, I get hate mail from people going, oh, you're just pushing the Democrats. No, it's got nothing to do with Democrats. It's got to do with climate change or guns. Oh, you're just, you know, you're one of those Democrats who wants to take your guns. No, it's got to do with, this is science. But because these industries have been able to buy a political party with a little help from the Supreme Court. That political party gives cover to these industries. It's this incredible loop. And I don't know the answer, you know, frankly, I don't know how to convince our media that climate change is not a partisan issue or that guns are not partisan issues. That they actually, these are actual issues that actually deserve some actual, real, whatever you want to call it, you know, serious consideration. But, you know, that's what's going on. Okay, just a couple of things that are worthy of note. U.S. manufacturing just contracted for the first time in several years. This, uh, when, the, when the manufacturing index is for the Inst Institute for Supply Management. Basically, they, this is the trade association for purchasing managers and companies, people who supervise, you know, getting inventory in and out, whether it's a retail store or whether it's a factory or whatever it may be. And when that, when their purchasing managers index falls below 50, it means that manufacturing has gone negative, that the inputs, the raw materials needed for manufacturing have dropped. And so manufacturing is going negative. And they went below 50 yesterday. By the way, that is at the lowest level since 2009. Remember what happened in 2008? I mean, it was even lower in 2008. It went back up to this level in 2009. Small business confidence has fallen to the lowest level since 2012. This is from the Wall Street Journal. They write, economic confidence among small firms fell in August to the lowest level since November 2012. This is a survey of 670 small companies for the Wall Street Journal. The portion of respondents that expected the economy to worsen over the next 12 months rose to 40% compared with 23% a year ago. Consumer confidence has fallen the most in six years. This is from Bloomberg. Construction spending just hit a seven-month low. I just noticed walking into the walking into work this morning. It's about a mile walk for me. And there's a couple of just the first two blocks, there were five houses for sale. It's like Everywhere I'm seeing for sale signs. I think people are starting to freak out. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Houses are not selling. People are starting to figure out that Donald Trump has just screwed the economy. You've been hearing and reading about CBD oil all over the place, right? It's all over the news. Everybody's loving CBD oil. Check out New Leaf Natural CBD oil. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people wanting the effects of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. 
and New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. 100% organic, highly concentrated, no additional additives, grown right here in the U.S., and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's n-u-leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. On the line with us is our old buddy Larry Cohen. Larry is the board chair of Our Revolution. He's also the board chair of the Democracy Initiative, past president of the Communication Workers of America, the CWA, OurRevolution.com, of course, the website. Larry, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you again. It is always fascinating talking to you. I've been working on this book on Monopoly, which is going to come out next year, and the huge correlation that I'm seeing is that when Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1981, the explosion of these giant companies, you know, started to sweep across our landscape and almost one to one ratio, almost in lockstep with it, as these companies got larger and larger, they got more and more effective at breaking unions and purging themselves of unions and of benefits that the unions had negotiated, things like pensions. And so we're kind of at a low point here. I mean, 40 years into the Republican war on labor, we've gone from a third of America being unionized to now, you know, 6% of the private workforce, 10% of the overall workforce. What is the state of labor right now? Well, you did a good job of summing up the objective situation in terms of economics. And, of course, what goes with that is falling wages in real dollar terms for most of my lifetime. So for four, more than half of my lifetime, more than 40 years. And things like health care costs, you know, zooming during that time. So it's actually even worse than that. And as you said, the total destruction in the private sector, which is where the monopoly capital factors in, 6.4% of the private sector with collective bargaining rights is by far the lowest of any democracy in the world. In the right. world, in fact, Japan is probably the next lowest, and it's about three times higher, the collective bargaining coverage. So it's catastrophic in terms of, of that. Now, the good news would be, in the face of all that and in the collapse of our legal system, there are new initiatives, whether it's Fight for 15 or whether it's a project that I've been working on to promote what's called bargaining for all, to sort of get around this notion that workers who try to organize and bargain have to fight off their own boss. And even when they win, you know, they then just go to another, to round two, which is, do you ever get a union contract? All right. So how do you solve that problem? Well, so in most of the world, meaning the world's democracies, South Africa, Argentina, virtually all of Europe, Bargaining is presupposed by sector. That's why we call it bargaining for all. So the whole hospitality sector would bargain at one time, not just fast food or not just McDonald's. Hmm. And the government wouldn't be involved in the bargaining, but they would facilitate the bargaining in the same way that theoretically the NLRB is supposed to facilitate bargaining here now. So problem number one would be what happens when you have a government like this one? And there are solutions to that, but... Mainly, it's that, you know, working class people are going to have to be part of a political movement where there's no structural solutions to this. So 
to that point, I know Bernie has called for years for a political revolution. I think that yep. uh, Elizabeth Warren's, she doesn't use that language, but certainly the policy prescriptions she's prescribing are a political revolution. Yep. Some of the other candidates, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, uh, Marianne Williamson, are calling for things that I think could easily be referred to as a political revolution. How does this play out? I mean, I look back at the history of the United States, and we had essentially a political revolution after the assassination of McKinley when, and I'm not, you know, this has nothing to do with assassinations, but when Teddy Roosevelt became president in 1901 and just went whole hog on trust busting and stuff like that, him and Taft. Then we had a counter-revolution in 1920 with the election of Harding. Then we had another revolution in 32 with the election of Franklin Roosevelt. Then we had a counter-revolution with the election of Reagan in 1980. Each one of these turned on an economic crisis. Reagan, after the, the hyperinflation of the Carter years, obviously the you know FDR after the Great Depression. McKinley, we had the Great Depression of 1897 that was arguably worse than, than the crash of 1929, you know, that led to, led to Teddy Roosevelt. Is it possible to have a revolution outside of a political crisis, or is this slow-moving political crisis that, that brought to us by, you know, 40 years of Reaganomics, has it reached a tipping point where it's widely perceived as a political, as an economic crisis, and that's enough to drive it? Or is my whole theory that you need an economic crisis to produce a political revolution just nonsense? Well, I would never say that because I've learned so much from you, seriously, over the years. No, I don't think it's nonsense at all. I do think we are in a crisis. The stagnant and even declining real wages that, you know, the overwhelming percentage of this country and now their children, because it's longer than a lifetime of work already, mm -hmm. have experienced in my organizing around the country, even since I left as president of CWA the last four years. You know, I think people are anxious to organize and build for that kind of revolutionary change. And I think part of it is, in the face of big money in politics, which you talk about all the time, is that electoral or what other forms can that take so that ultimately it has to be somewhat electoral? And how do we build that kind of majority in the face of the election next year will be probably eight or nine billion dollars, right. uh, which is staggering. That's more than the rest of the world put together will spend on elections in 2020, way more. And so I think it's a daunting challenge we face when you look at, as Bernie would say, the, the way the rules are rigged. By the Supreme it, Court, it, specifically, it, yes. Well, so, the Supreme Court, but even in the Democratic Party itself, I mean, it goes on and on. Yeah, well, so, I wanted to get to that, Larry, right. yeah. unless you finished your thought. Have you? I would just say that I think it's an awesome sort of challenge to get enough people moving, you know, in the same direction so that a different argument about the economy can get real traction. I do yeah. think we're closer to that than we've been in decades. But uh, you never know where the tipping point is. As the saying goes, it's always darkest right before the dawn. Well, and, and I think that this is all a variation on the old AA thing. And I've, I've never been an AA, so I might be mischaracterizing this. But my understanding is, you know, there's kind of a, an underlying assumption. You have to hit bottom before you really seriously start to come up. And I, I think that for a lot of Americans, the Trump presidency, 40 years of neoliberal economics, 
have taken us to bottom, which leads me to the question, you know, where's the Democratic Party in all this? We see the positions of some of the presidential candidates, although the media would much rather relentlessly focus on, you know, personal issues. And did somebody gaff or say something wrong? Or is Elizabeth Warren's Native American ancestry an issue? Or is Joe Biden's flaky memory an issue? They don't want to talk about policy. But when we, when, when you know, you're a policy guy, I'm a policy guy. When we actually look at the policies of the Democratic candidates for president, at least the ones that are polling at more than 2%, it seems to me that there's a fairly progressive tilt to most of them, and even Biden is taking some progressive positions. A, your thoughts on that, and B, how is that translating into the party as a whole? I had Mark Gamba, a guy here in Oregon, who is taking on Kurt Schrader, who's the head of the of the Blue Dog Caucus, you know, mm-hmm. and literally taking money from Koch brother affiliated organizations, a Democratic member of the House of Representatives right here in Portland. And, um, and Mark Gamba is trying to challenge him. Uh, he's the mayor of one of the towns here uh, in the primary. We're seeing primary challenges like this. This is how Ocasio-Cortez got into, you know, uh, into, into her seat in the House was in a, in a primary challenge. Uh, what's your sense of how things are going with the party? Is the party actually moving in a more dire- progressive direction and fast enough for you? Well, it's never fast enough for me. But So there's 57 parties, and I think that's important because the path for change is within each of them. That includes the territories. So you're talking about there's the national party, there's all the state parties, and then there's the parties in Puerto Rico and Guam and the Virgin Islands? Yeah. Is that, okay. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And so the only way change actually can occur is through the states. I've been on the DNC for 15 years, and I was heartened by the fact that there's now somewhere between 75 and 100 of us out of the 450 on the DNC that are pushing for real change. You know, I would say that this chairman, even though we had a big difference over the climate debate last week in San Francisco, at least now it's a party when they meet twice a year, there's actually debate. We had a real debate about climate change. And so I think the party on that level is opening up, but it's driven by the change in so many of the states, particularly out west, including your Oregon and Washington and even California. And then all those western states are very, very different than the Democratic Party in the eastern and southern states, which hasn't changed, uh, I would say, much at all, Mm. except for northern New England. So there is a path for change there. I think it's a critical part of it because part of the rigging in our country is it's almost impossible to, uh, you know, unless the Democratic Party itself integrates and forms a new party, it's almost impossible to not be usually disadvantaged uh, working outside it. So you pretty much, in my opinion, need to work inside it. It is opening up. Uh, There's a long way to go, and it's not going to really change unless we break open these Democratic parties in in the Mid-Atlantic particularly New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, uh, and the South. Um, mm. And we got a long way to go there. Now, so, is that just uh, a matter of getting more progressives to show up and say, hey, I want to participate, or, or are there structures in place that keep people like that out? It's definitely both. And most precincts have no precinct chair, so people can run. And then it's about pyramiding up from the precinct level to change the party. Right. So we have a long way to go, but we're in it to win it. Yeah, so we're back to my mantra, you know, that I learned from, frankly, the Tea Party guys back in 2008, which is volunteer for the party and then run for precinct committee person. That's right. And Warren plus Bernie 
is far greater than any other candidate. It's 40% of the votes. Yeah, that's the good news. The two, the two open progressives who are not taking a penny of corporate money, the only two who are not taking a penny of corporate money, as far as I know, have four, literally 40% of the primary vote right now, which should encourage all of us. Larry Cohen, the board chair of Our Revolution and the Democracy Initiative, past president of the CWA, Communica- Communication Workers of America. Thanks, Larry. And I should add, a member of the DNC. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back in the 1920s or 30s, I think it was the 20s, there was a law passed by Congress and signed into law by the president. They passed this law that said that the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, at that point in time, I mean, the income tax was only a decade old at that time, and the president had the ability to look at anybody's income tax returns because he ran the executive branch, and the executive branch included the IRS. And that was just accepted. But Congress did not have that right. And there were some questions, right? I think this might go back to the Teapot Dome scandal. I'll have to look it up. But whatever it was, Congress passed a law that said that one guy in the House of Representatives or woman, the chairperson of the House Ways and Means Committee, that one person has the right, without condition, without excuse, they don't need to come up with a reason, they simply have the right to see the tax returns of anybody in the United States, which includes the president. They can get anybody's tax returns. That person is Richard Neal. Richard Neal is a real low profile guy and he asked for the tax returns. He sent a letter to the IRS and to Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of the Treasury, saying, you know, per this law, please send us Trump's tax returns. And of course, Trump sued and said no. So Richard Neal and the Democrats went to court and said, please enforce the law. And they got before this judge, Trevor McFadden. Now, Trevor McFadden is a young guy. He's a Federalist Society right-wing nut. He was put on the court by Donald Trump about a year ago. He's a U.S. District Judge out of D.C. And he could have said, yeah, sure, this is the law. Hand over the tax returns. It would have been uncontroversial. But there was this guy, this 80-year-old guy, his name is Dwayne Morley Cox, who filed a friend-of-the-court brief, a motion, to intervene in this case, saying in his brief, he said that if Trump gets distracted by having to turn over his tax returns, and Iran starts misbehaving. And this is a quote from what this guy filed with the court. But then the Iranians might have escalated matters, and we could be in a military situation which affected oil deliveries throughout the world and resulting military consequences with their attendant negative impact upon the economies of many nations, including the United States. This is if Trump gets distracted by the IRS having to turn over his tax returns, even though he has nothing to do with the process. In fact, Trump's lawyers said, we don't care about this guy, this Cox guy. We, you know, he's, he doesn't even have standing here. Ignore him. But the judge said, Judge McFadden said, well, you know, we have to listen to what Mr. Cox had to say. 
And we have to determine whether he should be allowed to intervene. So probably we will rule on whether or not the House Ways and Means Committee gets Trump's tax returns after the election. Why this isn't the top story in the news, I don't know. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Particularly with this story out there, Lawrence O'Donnell has not walked the story back. He simply apologized for reporting it. That Trump's loans were co-signed by oligarchs. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. It's all very, very weird. Frank in Philly. Hey, Frank, what's up? I was calling you about Larry Cohen and CWA and organizing efforts and that. I spent 15 years organizing, and I believe the biggest problem for organized labor today is the stupidity of people. They don't understand what they're under. You can explain it till the cows come home. People are overworked today. I think the two-paycheck system has killed organized labor in America. The 40-year mortgage has killed organizing efforts in America. The credit card has killed organizing efforts in America. The long payments for health care, giving you the option of just mortgaging yourself to death when you get sick, has right. killed organizing efforts. Let me put it in a slightly different context and see if you agree with this frame. Broadly, when you're talking about killing labor, what you're talking about are people who live in right-to-work-for-less states, states that have adopted the Taft-Hartley Act provisions and uh, allow people who are working for a company where the workers are unionized under right-to-work-for-less, you can refuse to pay union dues. You can simply say, yeah, the union has to represent me. The union has to bargain on my behalf. The, u- the union's lawyers have to represent me. All of the Supreme Court has ruled that all that's the case, and, it all, and the union has to do all that at its own expense. But I have the choice of no longer paying union dues. Now, back, back when I was a kid, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, when my dad worked at a tool and die shop in Lansing, Michigan, he was making a good enough wage that he could take a couple of weeks of vacation every year. He bought a new car every two years. He bought a house and it was completely paid off when he retired. He had a pension. I mean, he was earning a good enough living that he didn't mind that the union was taking 10 bucks a week out of his paycheck. In fact, he was grateful for it because it provided him with that high quality of life. But now in these workplaces, even unionized workplaces, increasingly, people are living on the edge. This is what you were talking about, the two-income families and things like that. People are living on the edge, and when a corporate consultant comes along, you know, and they literally, I mean, this is a $2 billion a year industry where these people come in to the workplace, and they sit all the employees down, and they say, you know, they're pulling 30 bucks a week out of your paycheck for your union dues. You don't have to pay that. You could have an extra 30 bucks a week if you want. The and guys take it. Exactly. And the guy and and about half. This is what we saw in Wisconsin when Scott Walker passed that law was about 45 percent of the union members said, "Okay, screw the union. I'd rather have the 30 bucks a week. And it's not because they hate the unions. It's because their finances are so desperate because 40 years of Reaganomics has ripped the guts out of the middle class. Well, I'm in a construction union. I bring engineers and I was grateful. I had the opportunity to go out and organize for the last 15 years and that. But like I said, it goes really down to stupidity. People think that they should be paying portions of their health care. When I started doing this, I saw a $2,000 deductible 
Well, there's nothing wrong with it. I see $10,000 deductible now, and they still believe that's right to do. Yeah, which and is crazy. The last, the, the last great union president we had was, you know, Mr. Truman. And he was the only one that only cared about work. Yeah. All these other guys are just... Public. Yeah, Harry Truman got it. Well, I think LBJ got it, too, but Harry Truman really got it. Frank, thanks a lot for the call. Spot on. Picture your face in the mirror. Do you see all those wrinkles around your eyes? How about crow's feet or those large under eye bags? Now imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, or under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. I look just like me, only 10 years younger. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it unless you tell. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offers also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code TOM. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TriPlexiderm.com today and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout. That's TriPlexiderm.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. I want to broaden the scope of our conversation, though, to include uh, the guy in the White House right now. And one of the things that I found just fascinating, the New Yorker, newyorker.com is their online presence, the magazine, the New Yorker, a piece by Susan Glasser titled Trump's Wacky, Angry, and Extreme August. And she points out that the previous August, he tweeted 200 and some odd insults during the course of the month. This time, it's something like 600, over 600. She just goes on through documenting bizarre behavior after bizarre behavior after bizarre behavior. A lot of us are quite concerned, and this goes way beyond politics. And in fact, 27 different psychiatrists, or 27 psychiatrists in the United States, contributed to a book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assessed the President, that was edited in part by Dr. Bandy X. Lee. Dr. Lee is a forensic psychiatrist, internationally recognized expert on violence, is at the Yale University Medical School, an assistant clinical professor there, and co-founder of the World Mental Health Coalition, and as I said, editor of this book. Dangerouscase.org, by the way, is the website for the book, and Dr. Lee's uh, Twitter handle is Bandy, B-A-N-D-Y-X, Lee, L-E-E-1. Dr. Lee, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. So, first of all, if you could address, and I've had this conversation with Justin Frank, the psychiatrist at Georgetown University Medical School, a yes, few times. Know you know, there's this debate going on within the psychiatric, psychological, psychotherapeutic community about A, the possibility of diagnosing somebody that you don't know and you've never met, or B, the advisability of that, you know, or the advisability or even the ability to do it. And the argument that I've made and that Dr. Frank has made as well is that when you have a person with a comprehensive public record, literally going all the way back to their childhood, somebody where you really know what's, or at least you think you know, what their history is, and you compare that to the first few hours or first few sessions anyway, where you're meeting a brand new patient or a client, and they're trying hard to impress you and you know basically feeding you BS, 
it's actually easier to diagnose somebody with this kind of comprehensive public record than it might be somebody sitting across the table from you, or at least as easy and that diagnosis may be as valid or perhaps even more valid. Can, you want to weigh in on that debate first when we get that out of the way and then we can talk about Donald Trump? Yes, absolutely. One of the reasons why I've been upset with the American Psychiatric Association is the promulgation of misinformation, basically supporting the misconceptions that the public has. In other words, we do not always diagnose. Diagnosis is a very specific activity that requires all medical records and basically all information. And I'm, I tend to be in support of a personal interview, although since 1980, our diagnoses have been based on external observation of behavior. And research has shown that, in general, doing a personal interview is not necessarily more helpful than reviewing the appropriate records. So as for what Dr. Frank has been mentioning, having this vast range of public record over a long period of time and also witnessing the president's reactions to actual situations in real time over extended period of time is extremely valuable information and certainly more valuable than what can be obtained from a personal interview, as you mentioned. So given that, what is it that you and your colleagues who contributed to this book, what is the conclusion that you have come to and what are the concerns that you have derived from that conclusion? Well, from the beginning, our assertion was that the President Donald Trump in the office of the presidency was dangerous. It is dangerousness is not a diagnosis. So basically, there were three themes that we could summarize the book into. First is that he is more dangerous than the public seemed to be recognizing, and that he would grow more dangerous over time, and that ultimately he could become uncontainable. Which and is what Michael Cohen also, warned us about. If, forgive my interruption. Exactly. But, yeah. Yes, yes. So I would agree with Michael Cohen, who knew him for a decade. A number of people who have had close interactions with him actually can provide that kind of information, close-range information that we can take into account. Tony Schwartz was one who contributed to our book. And the book has a second edition, by the way, has 37 mental health experts now who show the social, cultural, geopolitical consequences of psychological dangerousness in a powerful position. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you said there were three aspects. That was the first? Or did you cover all three just then? Yes. The three were that he is more dangerous than people can imagine because most people are used to normal interactions with normal individuals. Those who have had experience with this type of pathology, of course, are keenly aware, and they often report being re-traumatized by this presidency because it reminds them with flashbacks and unwanted memories about their traumatizing experience. These are people who have been um, in abusive situations, for example. Exactly, yes. So what do we do about this? So... I have always felt that it was very dangerous that we were avoiding any conversation. You mentioned about the validity or appropriateness, usefulness of having public conversations. When the authorities aren't acting, and we tried for a very long time to, when the authorities contacted us, that is Congress members, we tried very hard to consult in private. When it was getting nowhere is when we went public. And of course, the American Psychiatric Association just 
came after us time after time, chastising us publicly. This is the old uh, Goldwater rule, right? Right, yeah. which I am a staunch supporter of, but they have adulterated, uh, they have altered the Goldwater rule to not just cover diagnosing, but, you know, diagnosing is about someone's personal mental health. We're not interested in a public figure's personal mental health. But they have actually turned it into a gag order in that we cannot speak about any aspect of a public figure of any kind, even in a national emergency. Now, this is there. A, I, forgive, forgive my interruption, but is there a penalty for that, or is this just a slap on the hand or a policy? I mean, are, are you uh, facing no, in fact, loss of licensure it's or certification? Unconstitutional and illegal, as far as I'm concerned. But they have gone on public relations campaigns to basically discredit us in public. I'm not even a member of the APA. In fact, I resigned 12 years ago because of their excessive ties with the pharmaceutical industry, which has reflected itself in its policies. It used to support strongly patient interests, uh, patient rights, and now it supports chemical therapy above all else. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it's receiving federal funding has been said to be the reason why it has done this. And the public should be aware because it's being deprived of information. And by stopping those who are qualified to comment on the president from speaking at all, the public has had to settle with pundits and entertainers and non-experts who are, you know, giving faulty diagnoses. And so this is actually a very dangerous situation, I believe. Words like malignant narcissism and sociopath and borderline personality, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of these words thrown around. These are, you know, typically within the realm of diagnosis as opposed to dangerousness. Well, which is there, what uh, there has been a political group that's been kind of co-opting a lot of our message. It's called Duty to Warn. I'm not a part of that group, I'd like to clarify. In fact, mm-hmm. I tried my best legally to get my name off of uh, their website. They wouldn't do it. But they have promulgated diagnoses. We have not. Right. So your argument is not, hey, this guy's a a narcissist and therefore. Your argument is when we look at this man's behaviors, which indicate his mental state, those behaviors are dangerous to this country. Am I boiling it down? Yes, exactly. Dangerousness has nothing to do with diagnosis. In fact, it has nothing to do with mental illness. We hear a lot about how gun violence is related to mental illness. It is untrue. We cannot emphasize enough that mentally ill individuals are no more dangerous than the general population. And even when they do become dangerous, it is usually social factors, not factors related to the illness that make them dangerous. So we have a separate set of criteria that we go through when we're assessing dangerousness. And that's pretty much accessible from public records. It's absolutely fascinating. It's a conversation that needs to continue. And frankly, I think the whole 25th Amendment thing, I'm just very concerned about it. I'm worried. This is the guy who was tweeting in 2012. It was when Obama was looking for re-election. Donald Trump was tweeting, Obama wants to get re-elected. He's going to start a war with Iran to get himself re-elected. Mm-hmm. So he That's clearly right. thinks so, that way. Exactly. That scares what the hell out of Individuals it. say about others, indicate more about themselves than about the others. And uh, we should take Donald Trump for his words 
whenever he is describing other people that he's really talking about himself. Yeah, remarkable. Dr. Bandy X. Lee uh, from Yale School of Medicine or with, you know, at, uh, assistant clinical professor at the Yale School of Medicine. The book is The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, second edition, 37 psychiatrists, mental health experts assess the president. The website, dangeruscase.org. Dr. Lee, thank you for dropping by. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Fun fact, since elected, Trump has spent $110 million in taxpayer money on golf outings, enough to fund his own presidential salary for 275 freaking years, or enough to pay the total salaries of 68 one-term presidents, all on golf and all at taxpayer expense. And now we've got Pence staying in a Trump property in Ireland, hundreds of miles from where he was supposed to be, just to give Donald Trump some more money from our taxpayers. Christopher in Sacramento. Hey, Christopher, what's up? I'm just so sick and disgusted with the uh, situation in this nation and with, with the Republican Senate. The Republican Senate is a crime. They are an organized crime. Yeah, well, this is Massacre Mitch, and, and he also doesn't want to fix our voting machines, so that makes him Moscow Mitch as well. And he, he apparently he was complaining to Hugh Hewitt, one of my colleagues uh, on the radio this weekend, that he doesn't like being called Moscow Mitch. Poor Moscow Mitch. Kenneth, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you, and thanks for watching us there in Nevada. Muhammad in Chino, California. Hey, Tom, it's good to hear from you. I have, like, three little comments, if you'll bear with me. One is, I'm a huge fan of Noam Chomsky, but anybody under 50 has never heard of him, so I consider you essentially the 21st century Noam Chomsky. And well, thank you, except appreciate he's Tom. still around, so... <laughs> yeah. I know, he's still around, he's like 80-something. I, I, when I mention have you, you, know, you ever heard of Noam Chomsky? What is it? Imperial hegemony and this kind of stuff? He's right. like, no. Yeah. Okay, that's one point, just because I wanted to let you know how much I value your scope of knowledge and your ability to put pull things together and make them coherent. The other issue was the FEC, you know, the Federal Election Commission, how the essentially all of this is like pieces of this conspiracy almost. I mean, that's all, all the way I can think yeah, of it. They're getting ready to steal an election, and so they just shut down the police department, the Federal Election Commission. Right. I'm just like every element of freedom of democracy and voting is being completely trashed, right. you know, with black voter suppression and disenfranchisement and all of that stuff. And you Hispanic. Know, yeah. So that was one issue. <laughs> this has been on my mind for a long time, right? Just listening to Trump and seeing what he does. It occurs to me, I don't know if anyone else has ever thought of this, but presidential candidates, once they become the official contender for the party, should be required to take, you know, a psychiatric evaluation and a cultural literacy test and, you know, so they know where stuff is in the world and they understand what's going yeah. on. And so I'm, I'm going to disagree with you that. on that, Mohammed, because, you know, yeah. a psychological test is only as good as the test. The well, test like, should be we the I'm people. Going, right? What I mean, fell apart here was not a failure of testing, it was a failure of the media. You know, they just, on the ball, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, the media just gave him all this time, and they never seriously challenged him because they didn't believe he was going to become president. They thought it was a sideshow that they yeah, could make money right. off of, and they made a hell of a lot of profit, as Les Moonves you know, pointed out at CBS before he got busted for forcing himself on women. But that's where the problem is. Mohammed, thanks for the call. Until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite. My wife convinced me that there was one that was worth sharing. 
Well, after a year, I have to say she was right. Louise said once her appetite and cravings were under control, losing weight was easy and she's kept it off. I've also heard from listeners that it's worked for them. Now my producer, Sean, is trying Ridges Zone too. The fact that the only ingredient in Ridges Zone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant appealed to Louise and to Sean as well. Sean says she's not thinking about food or hungry between meals anymore and she feels full longer after eating. Listen, if you're trying to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Zone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to RidUZone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. RidUZone.com. Promo code TOM. RidUZone.com. Boy, what a day. What a day, huh? Rich in Calumet, Michigan. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? Well, last week we had our little, I guess you'd call it town fair or whatever. And, of course, they had a Republican and a Democrat booth there. And my daughter kept pulling me, don't go over there. I know you're going to want to go debate with them because that's just, I love to do The state raised me and turned me into a fighter, so I'm a fighter. Okay. <laughs> and I watched all these Religious folks, you know, we, we have a large community of old apostolics, and they are going up taking pictures with this cutout of Trump. So I finally, when, when my daughter took off to go for the rides, I finally walked over and started talking to them a little bit, asking them questions. And, you know, they're like, oh, well, I'm doing better now because I got my tax break. And I goes, you know, that only lasts for about five or six years, and then that's gone. And the really thing that really got them was when I said, well, what do you feel about the environment? And that's when they bowed their heads in kind of shame and said, I don't think we have any time left. We've already crossed the precipice. And Wait a minute. The, the, said, you're talking, do you this is the Republican booth? Guy? Hang on just a second. This is the Republican booth that you're talking about, Rich? Yes. And the Republicans who were, the, presumably these were just average citizens manning the booth, volunteering, and they said yep. we, we're out of time for the environment? Yep. Whoa. They bowed their head and they kind of, that was the one part. So is they, this they their new excuse for doing nothing? nothing? Is this their new excuse for doing nothing? It's too late to do anything, so what the hell? I'm kind of guessing. You know, a lot of them think that Jesus is going to come and save them, man. And I'm like, oh man, show me anywhere in the Bible. I'd just like to see one thing that says, where, where's the rapture? Where is this going to happen? And when? And they get all quiet, like I said, and they bow their head in shame. Incredible. So who were the people manning the booth? They're just your average, I'm guessing, you know, Republican. A lot of them, I'm guessing, were old apostolic Lutheran because that's what right. the majority and they were all running up their young children because they have lots of them because they don't believe in birth control and, and they're taking pictures with the Trump cut out and I just you know like I said I couldn't resist I had to go in and talk yeah yeah <laughs> and I confronted them on a number of issues and you know they had a few arguments with some of them and when it came to the climate they just like I said they just bowed their head in shame I mean, that's, that's the best way as I can put it. You know, they had this almost terrified look on their face, like, we know that it's over. Well, maybe they think that that, I mean, you know, it, it does say, I'm not remembering exactly where, but the, the deal that God made with Noah was that the world would never be destroyed by water. The next time it would be fire. 
And, you know, there's some reference to that in Revelation. So maybe they think that these are the end days. Maybe they're even, you know, thinking, oh boy, oh boy, you know, it's like the world gets destroyed by fire, then Jesus returns and, and we all get resurrected I from the dead. I'm, I'm constantly talking to, I've got a number of neighbors that are religious, you know, and I, I ask these questions. Yeah. You know, where where do you get your information from that says that you're going you're not going to live through a so-called tribulation. You're not going to live through, you know, well, 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 you know, we heard it from our pastor. Well, where does it say it in the Bible, you know? And right. they have no answers. That's a tough one. Rich, thanks a lot for the call. It's <laughs> fascinating. Hi, it's the Tom Hartman Book Club with the Tom Hartman University, and today we're reading from Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. I'm reading from the preface. This is page XIII. The world right now is tottering atop three major thresholds, an environment that is so afire that it may soon no longer be able to support human life, an economic free market system that is almost entirely owned, run, and milked by a tiny fraction of 1% of us and has crashed and in many ways is burning around us, and an explosion of human flesh on the planet that has turned our species into a global petri dish just waiting for an effective agent to run amok. Four mistakes have brought us to this point, and the failure to recognize them at their deepest level will only push us faster toward total tipping points where we are thrown over the three thresholds and into disaster. All four of these mistakes are grounded in our culture, our way of thinking, our way of seeing the world, the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and why we're here. The first mistake is a belief that we're separate from nature. Our religions tell us that we were created by a supernatural being who is not part of this earth and not from this planet. He set us apart from all other life and many among us, perhaps even the majority of the six billion of us, roughly seven billion now, don't even believe that we are animals, but instead think we're a totally unique life form. The second mistake is a belief that an abstraction an economic system is divine and separate from us. This mythical so-called free market, so we believe, operates under its own divine rules and is entirely and eternally self-regulating. It is always right. The fact that worldwide it's more than 95% owned and run by fewer than 0.000001% of us, it's just the way things are, always were, and always will be. We are here to serve the economy, this belief goes. It's not here to serve us. The third mistake is a belief that men should run the world and that women are their property. While it may seem that women's rights are well advanced and society is nearly egalitarian in the developed world, the United States, Western Europe, and Australia combined are only about a quarter of the population of the world. In India, it's still a common rural practice for men to burn their wives to death simply because it's more convenient than divorce. In many Arab countries and across much of Africa and South America, it's not uncommon for women to be murdered by their families if they dishonor the family by not going along with an arranged marriage or not being a virgin at time of marriage. Even in the first world, women are routinely excluded from positions of power in the world's largest institutions, such as the Catholic Church. This is one of our biggest mistakes, not just because it's morally deficient or because it can be biologically challenged but because its primary result is an explosion in population. The fourth mistake is a belief that the best way to influence people is through fear rather than through the power of love, compassion, or support. 
We stand baffled when Palestinians in Gaza vote for a political party that has a long history of terrorist activity, somehow completely overlooking the fact that that same group has been feeding people, building schools and hospitals, and providing old age and widow pensions to people in need. We think we can threaten and bomb people into liking us and behaving in ways consistent with our best interests while ignoring their own best interests. We've come to believe that we are not our brother's keeper, that we are separate from all other humanity on the planet, and in all that, we are mistaken. Civilizations have come and gone, and those long gone vanished mostly because they despoiled their commons, allowed small elites to control their economies and governments, and lived in ways that were unsustainable. Those who survived for centuries or millennia are the ones that learned how to protect their commons, engage in non-toxic commerce and governance, and organize their cultures and lifestyles in ways that could continue in the same place and the same way down through the ages. If we don't learn the lessons of the latter, we shall face the fate of the former. The book is Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. Hey, we've got a new video out. It's available over at TomHarbin.com. And, I mean, you, know, you had Mike Pence coming out and saying, America will never be a socialist country. No, that's why we need to get rid of Social Security, right? That's why we need to get rid of Medicare. That's why we need to get rid of fire departments and police departments and public schools and all those other socialist programs. Well, actually, yeah, this is how Republicans think. Ronald Reagan, for example, speaking against Medicare back in the day. The doctor begins to lose freedoms. First, you decide the doctor can have so many patients. They're equally divided among various doctors by the government. But then the doctors aren't equally divided geographically. So it, you know, it's just, it's just a, a nonsense argument. Anyhow, I've got this entire history of Republicans calling Democrats socialists from 1928 to today. You find a link to it over at TomHartman.com to check out our special video out. Check it out at TomHartman.com. So let's check in with Talk, Talk Media News right now and find out what's going on in the world today. Bob Nay with Talk Media News is on the line with us. Hey, Bob, what's up? Well, I did want to, this news is three days old, but it ties into questions about Michael Flynn, you mm -hmm. know, and um, whether he did a plea. Michael Flynn did a guilty plea of lying to the government, and his sentencing is to be sometime this fall. And so his lawyers, though, however, have now said that they want access to information in the Mueller report and some other additional information that he was part of a twist and a maneuver and a plot, and they want additional information relating to Trump and Russia. So I just thought I would throw right. that out there. Now, when he pled guilty or pleaded guilty mm -hmm. to that crime, did that mean that he got a dishonorable discharge, and did that mean that he lost his pension? No, it doesn't, because here's how it goes. When you plead guilty but you are treated as if you are not convicted because, in this case, for example, they're trying to get new additional information. That plea could be reversed, changed, a judge could rule. It's not so it's all on a bans right now. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah, the day you're sentenced, the day you're sentenced, that becomes the conviction. And at that point in time, uh, however, the, pension, the pensions are not lost because there's never been an across-the-board removal of pensions unless you're expelled 
If you're expelled, it's different. Otherwise, uh, tensions have always remained. Rob Blagojevich, you know, myself, others, uh, Flynn, anybody in the federal government, because they've never come to terms with a broad brush on pensions. Fascinating. So what's at mm-hmm. the top of the news today, Bob? Yes. I just wanted to add that to you know, mm-hmm. clear up. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, this is something else. Trump allies are raising money to target specifically reporters. Now, they're raising about $2 million as we speak to investigate reporters and editors of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and, quote, other outlets. Right, now, this, this is a fundraising pitch that's been sent out there, by this, the way. This is intimidation. Yeah, well, and it's a fundraising pitch. Actually, a friend of mine supposed to send me the pitch because I actually want to see it, but right. you know, he told me about it, and then it's been in one of the articles today. So what they're doing is they're going to target reporters and editors, and they are going to go after social media platforms. They're going to allege bias. Now, that's the smokescreen, Tom, that they're going to go after bias. Actually, what's going to happen here is that this money will most likely be used in opposition research, which is private investigators. And then if they dig up information on, quote, the left, you know, meaning CNN, MSPs, whoever, whoever on the left, anybody, then they will try to have the right media outlets fork that information out to the general public. Yeah, my guess is that they're looking for, you know, I mean, what's being reported is that they're looking for things like, let's pick on Bob Schieffer, because I don't think he's doing the media anymore. Mm-hmm. Say he mm-hmm. reports a story for CBS News that says that, you know, Donald Trump has done some terrible thing. And so immediately they come out and say, ah, but look at this. Back uh, six years ago, Bob Schieffer posted a Facebook page that he thought uh, Donald Trump was a was a, a no good human being. And therefore, you can't trust him. He's, uh, he's biased. I'm guessing, though, that they're also going to be wanting to say, oh, and by the way, he was having an affair. Yes, that's the part I was going to add. Absolutely media bias. There is no question this money will be used for, quote, opposition research, which are private investigators. And then if they've had any type of scandal, whatever, they will add that into the mix, not just of of bias. There's no question that's what this is going to mean. If I'm a reporter with those newspapers, I'm going to read this and take it that way. That's incredible. What else is up, Absolutely. Well, McConnell... Now, I had a couple of Republicans today that were telling me they knew why Mitch McConnell is saying he's going to wait for the White House to chart the path on gun violence legislation. They think he's doing it to give cover for his Senate Republicans. I'm arguing that he that might be part of the reason, but I'm arguing the real reason is they don't trust the president because in his public statement, this is what McConnell said. He said he wants to make sure that senators would actually be making a law and not having serial votes. Right. So, so he's I in other words, he's afraid that yeah. if they pass legislation, say, say, just bringing back the assault weapons ban. I mean, something relatively innocuous Correct. that was not yeah. controversial and was actually aggressively supported by by, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush and Ronald Reagan back in the day. Correct. Let's say that they bring back the assault weapon ban. They pass it through the House and Senate goes to Trump's desk. Trump gets a call from Wayne LaPierre who goes, what? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And, and Trump goes, oh, I'm sorry, Wayne, no problem. And he vetoes it. And now Mitch has got egg on his face. Is that what you're talking about? Oh, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, this is not just about protecting Republicans. This is about not trusting the president. Yeah. Amazing. Right. Amazing. <laughs> Bob Nate, yeah. thanks a lot, Bob. Thank you. Great thank talking you. with you. And thank you for being with us today. It's uh, you know a fascinating day. A lot going on in the world. It's only going to get more and more interesting as time goes on. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. But in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. So, hey, check out your local Democratic Party. 
consider running for precinct committee person or, or simply applying for the gig. You know, in some cases you can get paid for this. There's so much that you can do. There's so many ways you can get involved. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Same time, same place. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.